good morning, everybody. I'd love for you to join me in the book of Psalms, chapter 19. Uh, we're going to start there together in just a moment. I do have a couple of real brief announcements as we get started. The first involves uh, Vacation Bible School. We are going to have VBS in two weeks from Sunday, June the 27th through Thursday evening, July the 1st, each evening from 6 p.m. until 8 p.m. Now, uh, we need some help. Many of you have already volunteered to, to help us out. If you're a teenager or adult, what we're asking you to do is to go on our website and sign up to be a volunteer. Now, just so we're all on the same page, if you plan to volunteer and have not yet signed up, we really need you to do that by this coming Wednesday, June 16th. That'll be, for a lack of a better term, the cutoff to volunteer because then we need the remaining time to organize where everybody will serve in their different places. Does that make sense? So if you've not volunteered to volunteer, that was a little bit redundant. If you've not signed up to be one of our volunteers and you know, hey, I'm going to be there VBS week to work with the children, to serve the children. I just haven't signed up yet. If you can do that by this Wednesday, that'll be awesome. Second, if you're a child or you're the parent of a child who's going to be with us for VBS, it's also really helpful if you volunteer or, or you register rather ahead of time. Same thing. Go to the website, sign up, and then you'll be pre-registered. Now, you can register the day of. It'll just take you a little bit longer. And so it's a big help to us if you'll do that ahead of time. Does that make sense? VBS, two weeks. And then you just tuck this in the back of your head. On that Sunday, June the 27th, we won't have Sunday school that morning. We'll have this service at 1030, but because we set things up all over the building, and particularly in the classrooms that are used for VBS, we won't have Sunday school that morning. All right? Good to go. Now, on to other good and glorious things. Psalm 19. I always love to have our call to worship from our fighter verse. Now, we have fighter verses as a church family. That means there's a particular passage of Scripture that the week leading up to our Sunday worship, we seek to memorize, we seek to meditate upon it, because we firmly believe that God has chosen to reveal Himself through His Word. And so in order to know God as He really is, we'll know Him through His Word. And this past week, the fighter verse was Psalm 19, verses 9, 10, and 11. Now, before we read verses 9, 10, and 11, I want us to read the verses that come before it because David, inspired of the Holy Spirit, is going to compare God's Word to, to something. And I want you to pick up on what David compares God's Word to in the first six verses. Psalm 19, beginning in verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. In other words, creation is speaking to us about the creator. Their measuring line goes through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them... He has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom, leaving his chamber. How many of you love to see the sunrise? It's like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. Now notice verse 7, the transition. The law of the Lord is perfect. Now pop quiz question. What would happen to everyone in the room right now if the sun, S-U-N, just quit, just stopped being the sun? Would anybody be affected by that? Now, it's not just that anybody would be affected by that. Everybody would be affected by it, and everything in creation would be affected by it. Think of all that you do that's dependent on the S-U-N sun. Everything you do. What is he now comparing the sun in creation to in verse 7? The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. It's by the S-U-N that you see. It's by the word of God that you can really see. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. 
More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, in keeping them there is great reward. I just want to highlight verse 10, and then we'll make the Scripture what we pray. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Would you rather have $100 million or access to the Word of God? Which do you really desire more? Let's stand together and we're going to pray together. We're going to ask God that He'd give us grace that what we really desire, what we really want, what we really hunger for, what we're really after is knowing Him through His Word. And let's pray that the Holy Spirit will use this worship service unto that end. Father, I confess to you in humility that very often in my life, I do not desire your word in proportion to how valuable your word really is. May we see that apart from your word, apart from your testimony, apart from your law, apart from you telling us who you really are, we are completely blind. We cannot see right from wrong. We cannot see up from down. We cannot see at all. But I thank you that your word became flesh and Jesus has dwelt among us. And as the scripture testifies, we've beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So we pray that this worship service is full of Christ, full of your presence. It's full of grace and full of truth that we receive in his name. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Let's continue worshiping the Lord together with the reading of Scripture. And this morning I will be reading from Acts chapter 9, verses 26 through 31, as we are in a series of sermons entitled, The Church God Joins. And this morning we'll talk specifically about what it means to have gospel boldness. We don't have to figure out on our own what a healthy, spirit-led, Christ-exalting church looks like. We have what a spirit-led church is recorded in Scripture. So Acts chapter 9, I say that with confidence on the basis of verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. So verse 31, summary statement, verses 26 through 30, details on how we get to verse 31. What's true of the church that's spirit-led? Verse 26, when he, that's Saul, who's just been converted to Christ, when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. They were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him. Our God is a speaking God, amen? And how at Damascus he had preached boldly. If our God is a speaking God, we will be speakers too in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. He spoke and disputed against the Hellenists. But they were seeking to kill him, and when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off. So the church throughout all Judea and Samaria had peace, was being built up, walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Let's pray together. May it be so, Lord Jesus. May it be so. For the glory of your namesake, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've been using this paragraph, the very one that I just read, to uh, give us clear marks of a spirit-led church. We've been studying seven of them. First mark, we believe that God can save anybody. Amen? Saul was the most unlikely convert to Christ in Jerusalem at the time, and yet God has rescued him. There's nobody, nobody sitting here, nobody that you know that's beyond the reach of the grace of God. Second mark of a spirit-led church is we have Barnabas-like initiative. Barnabas didn't sit on the sideline, as Adrian Rogers says. You've not been saved to sit, stew, and sour. You've been saved to be like Barnabas, to welcome other people in. Third mark is having gospel boldness. That's the adjective that's here. Fourth mark is we cross cultural barriers and tear them down for the sake of Jesus. Saul encounters a group of people called the Hellenists. That's a people that have a different background than him, speak a different language than him, have a different culture than him, but he goes to them and proclaims the gospel. Another mark of a spirit-led church is being persecuted for righteousness' sake, being persecuted for righteousness' sake. As you seek to be faithful to the Lord, it won't go comfortably for you in the world. And then another mark of a spirit-led church is we send people out to the unreached so they can hear the gospel. And then we both walk in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. So we're taking one of those markers of a spirit-led church, one at a time, and taking a Sunday morning to emphasize them. And this morning it's gospel boldness. So if I achieve what I'm hoping to set out to do this morning, by the end of the sermon you'll be able to answer two questions. What is gospel boldness? Number one. And number two, do you have it? Those are the two questions that we're going to seek to answer together this morning. We're taking the word bold straight from the scripture. Look here, it says in verse 27, Barnabas took Saul and brought Saul to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. Now, what does that mean, that he preached boldly? doesn't mean that he preached loudly. doesn't mean that he's screaming. What it means is he's speaking and living clearly. I think a great summary statement that Paul himself makes to define gospel boldness is you remember when he says to the Philippians, for me to live is, does anybody remember what he said? 
For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Parenthetically, I want to tell you, the only way dying is gain for you is if living has been Christ. If you, for you to live is something other than Christ, dying won't be gain. Saul had asked a question and had it answered, and it changed everything about his life. Look with me in Acts chapter 9 a little bit earlier. Saul asks a question in verse 5. I want you to see the question for yourself written there right on the page. And when Saul got the answer to this question, it changed everything about his life. And I am going to take a moment to ask you if you've asked this question and had it answered, but I don't want you to be too quick to answer if you've answered the question. Does that make sense? So here's the question. Saul's on his way to Damascus. Verse 4, falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, here's the question, who are you, Lord? Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city And you will be told what you are to do. Now, keep this real simple, right? It's a real simple question. But if this question's ever really been answered in your life, it has everything to do with who you are and what you're really doing. It's not a question you can kind of answer. He's not kind of the Lord. He's not kind of the Savior. He's not a little bit Redeemer. He is the King. Have you ever actually answered the question, who is Jesus? And if Jesus is who he says he is, you cannot not be bold in your proclamation of the gospel. Amen? This won't ever happen. Now, you might be kind of bold if you think he's kind of king. So that's where we have to start, is Saul asks the question, who are you, Lord? Who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. Now I'm going to show you what to do. Now I just want you to see a little bit of his biography. Just look, when Saul of Tarsus has that question answered, I want you to see that it changes everything about him. Well, we read all these verses, but let's just go to verse 18. Immediately, Actually, let's go to verse 17. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes. He regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately, not eventually got around to it, but once he's full of the Holy Spirit, he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, isn't this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Jesus doesn't have a little effect on your life. He transforms everything about you. It's what we see here with the Apostle Paul. Now, we're told in Acts 9, our paragraph, verses 26 through 31, that Paul preached boldly, but we're not told what he actually said, right? It just says he preached boldly. What did he say? We're not told. In fact, that happens fairly regularly throughout the book of Acts. You'll find that Saul goes into such and such city, he enters the synagogue, and he reasoned with them about Christ. But we're not frequently told what he said. So, what did he say? Does anybody know what he said? 
You're in Acts. I want you to turn to the next book of the Bible, the book of Romans. Romans is the book preserved in the Scripture that shows us Paul's bold proclamation of the gospel and what it means to reason about Jesus. So Romans is his bold proclamation, and I'm going to preach a sermon through the book of Romans this morning. Actually, I'm not going to do that. It's going to take three verses. It's in the first chapter. It's in the introductory section. But I think what we can do is we can see what Paul says, and these three statements he makes, they're three I am statements. He's going to say, I am this, I am this, and I am this. And if we take those three statements, we'll have a really good idea of what it means to have gospel boldness. Let's start in Romans 1, verse. I always have a hard time deciding where to start because all the Bible's so great. Let's start in verse 8. I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you that I may impart some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as under, among the rest of the Gentiles. Next three verses, all of them will have an I am statement. Not an I am statement like Jesus makes, I am the bread of life, but just an I am statement as he's saying, here's... My life after meeting Jesus. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. Second one, verse 15. I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are also in Rome. Third, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in the righteousness of God it is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Let's take these three statements briefly, one at a time. Kind of, not to oversimplify it, but kind of think of a mathematical equation in your mind. We're going to see one, two, three things, and they equal gospel boldness. Number one, he says, I am under obligation. If you have a different translation in, in your Bible, it might say, I am a debtor. Anybody in your Bible have the word debtor? I'm, I'm a debtor to Greeks and barbarians. Now, in English, the word obligation, what kind of connotation does that have? If, if somebody asks you to do something and your response is, well, I'll do it because I'm obligated to do it. It has a negative connotation, right? It has the connotation that if really I had my choice, I wouldn't do it, but I'm obligated. I have to do it. That's not the way the word means here in this passage. The word means in this passage, what else would I do? Here's Saul's life. I'm living the way I live because what else would I do in response to what Jesus has done for me? Do you have a little bit of that in you or a lot of that in you? You get up in the morning and saying, I've been rescued by grace. I am an adopted child of the king. I am on my way to heaven. Therefore, I am obligated, not in a negative sense. It's my privilege to serve Jesus right now. The amazing thing about the Apostle Paul is he never ceased to be amazed by the grace of God. Everything he writes, first words out of his mouth, I'm so thankful for the grace of God. Every last word he says in his epistles, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ keep you, or something to that effect. Paul's not saying that he's obligated to God in this passage, though he is. Who is he saying he's obligated to? Look what he says. I'm under obligation both to Greeks... And to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So what is Paul saying? Or to whom is Paul obligated? To everybody around him. Do you think this way? Do you think this way? I'm obligated. I'm a debtor to other people. If you're not careful, you'll go through life thinking that you're owed and not that you're a debtor. I mean, that's not gospel boldness. Can I tell you what other people owe you? Nothing. And I can also tell you, you probably won't go looking for other people to give you things once you've received the grace of God in Christ Jesus. Amen? 
I mean, I don't have an appetite for the world and its offerings because I'm so satisfied in Christ. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying. But he's got this thought in his mind that when Jesus rescued him out of his life of spiritual death, that now the gospel hasn't come to him to just stay with him. He's now obligated to take it to somebody else. And that's how he spends the rest of his life. Did you notice how he starts in verse 8 with thankfulness? First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. Now, if you've been rescued by the grace of God, your life is not defined and uh, uh, marked by complaining and grumbling, but by gratitude. This past week, what did you do more of? Grumbling or giving gratitude to the Lord? Now, I need this help in my life. I'm so thankful for, uh, for Paul. Uh, you, you think with me for a moment. He's writing the book of Romans. I know we've been in Acts 9. And so a good number of years have gone by between Acts 9 and the writing of Romans 1. Can I just give you a few of the things that the Apostle Paul has been through in the interim? Number one, he showed up to church and they didn't want him there. I mean, we read that in Acts 9. He tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him. Number two, he's about lost his life multiple times. They dragged him out of the city. They stoned him. They thought he was dead. He's been through a lot of what we might call high-stress situations. He's had people that he's loved, poured his life into, walk away and say, I don't want anything else to do with Jesus. He's had that happen. I mean, all the hardship that a human being can go through, the Apostle Paul has been through it in huge ways and in huge amounts. And that brings me to this principle. No matter what you go through in life, if you abide in Christ, you will continually be thankful. Gratitude. If you know Jesus, what Christ has done for you will always speak in your life more than what anybody else has ever done to you. And that's what the Apostle Paul is saying is he's not going to throw in the towel. Anybody, if you're honest, say you're just about ready to quit. Anybody ever been there? I'm just about, I'm done. (laughs) Saul of Tarsus says, I've been struck down, but not destroyed. What we can learn from this point, I am under obligation, is that God had chosen Paul to carry his name to the Gentiles. Now, you just asked this question. If you're the apostle to the Gentiles, what city do you think would be most likely that you'd go to? Rome, right? I mean, if I'm the apostle to the Gentiles, I'm not doing a very good job if I've not even made it to Rome. But what have we read? I'm praying for you without ceasing. I long to see you, verse 11. I want you to know, verse 13, look what he says. I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented in order that I might reap some harvest among you as among the rest of the Gentiles. Now, I want you to hang with me for a moment because this has helped me in my life. Saul wants to go to Rome. Is he serving the Lord? Y'all just answer back. Is he serving the Lord? Does he demonstrate faithfulness to the Lord? Is he able to get to Rome? What's going on? I mean, why can't he get to Rome? Do you ever find a season of your life where you're just thoroughly confused why something isn't getting done? Or you think to yourself, why hasn't God allowed this to happen yet? Has anybody ever been there? I mean, it's just us. You can be honest. This doesn't make any sense. I'm the apostle to the Gentiles. The Gentile capital is Rome. And I can't get there. Now, here's what I want you to know. You got a Bible? I want you to open it. If Saul had gotten to Rome, you would not have Romans. He would have never written this letter. Now, he doesn't know that. God does. I've often intended. I mean, you think about the heartache behind that. I'm on the boat. I'm heading, and it's knocked off course. 
or my health is of such a nature. I can't make the trip right now. But he never loses his gratitude. And friends, I'd like to be able to say I've learned this lesson. But I want you to listen to me. The things in your life that most confound, confuse, and even have the potential to most frustrate you may very well be the things God would most use for you to proclaim His goodness to generations to come. And you say, it doesn't make sense right now. But don't lose your faithfulness and don't cast aside your gratitude. The first statement of Paul here that we're studying is, I'm indebted to everyone. This is the change. Remember we read it in Acts 9? Scales fell off his eyes and he was filled with the Holy Spirit. It means God came to live inside of him. This is the change. This is one of the changes the Holy Spirit brings to your life. Instead of feeling that other people are obligated or in debt to you, you are indebted to point other people to Jesus. You understand the good news of Jesus did not come to you to stop with you, but it's been entrusted to you in order that you will share Christ with others. Paul lived his life as witness and evidence. Amen? That's what they said. Hey, isn't this the guy? Isn't this the guy who used to be causing havoc? It's not just his words. It's his changed life. In other words, if you're full of the Holy Spirit, there's no explanation for who you are or what you do other than they believe in Jesus. They've answered the question, who are you? Second statement, he says, I'm eager to preach the gospel. Now, let's keep thinking together through the uh, verses. Where did Saul want to go? He wanted to go to Rome. He's been prevented from going to Rome. So what has he been doing in the meantime? This statement of the Apostle Paul helps us best understand how to answer this question. When and where should I share the gospel? You know what the answer is? Right now, where you are. You see, Paul doesn't say, I'm going to prepare and study and train so that if and when I ever get to Rome, I'll be ready to share the gospel. Eagerness lives out the gospel wherever you happen to be right now. Verse 15, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. In other words, I'm eager to preach it there, but I'm also eager to preach it here. Paul wants to get to Rome, but things keep interrupting him. One of the most subtle, crafty, but effective strategies of the world, the flesh, and the devil is to get you to be willing to share the gospel, just not now. Just if. One little word is all we have to put in. Or when. You get serious about proclaiming the goodness of God when you finish school. If you get married. When you take the mission trip. When you're a little more settled in your career. When the children aren't so young. Or when the children finish school. Or when the children are married. And if you're not careful, you'll put together enough if and whens that they become never and no ones. But I do want to say, I feel to be faithful to the Scripture, that doesn't happen in the life of the redeemed. Let the redeemed of the Lord, help me church, say so. I think sometimes we get paralyzed by preparation. We get so future focused. Now, what course, now just help me, just for a moment. Now, I, I, I'm all for helpful Bible studies and gospel witness training and so on and so forth. But what happened in Saul's life that led to him sharing about Jesus? What happened? Jesus happened. Amen? Now, do you think it might be a little bit strange to my wife, Julie, if I told her, I want to go around telling everybody how much I love you, but I'm going to take a class on it first? Now, it might be helpful to arrange my thoughts, to arrange my thinking. But for me to share uh, how I love her, it's because I know her. And there's no substitute for knowing Christ as who he is and proclaiming him with gospel boldness. No one turns into an eager witness on the basis of geography or chronological change. Now we change. I'm sorry, we, 
we turn into an eager witness on the basis of Christ rescuing us from the grave. Knowing Jesus, really knowing Him, makes you eager because everybody is eager to share about what they love. Do you know what you've talked about this week? What you've been eager to talk about? What you're interested in and what you love, right? I mean, you think about the grandparents who meet their grandchildren at the door. I mean, you want to talk about love. That's flat-out love right there. Grandkids are here, and you see the excitement. And eagerness is also evidence that you really believe what you proclaim. All right, prepare your toes. The number one reason we don't share the gospel is we don't really believe it. Not really. We don't proclaim it because we don't trust Him. Not really. I mean, in in other words, God help us. I mean, I I think we get stuck in the form of things, but have one of the warnings of the Scripture is in the last days be a form of godliness but deny its power. We're about to get the word power right here in Romans 1. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. But nobody gets guilted in to proclaiming the gospel. I should, so therefore, no, do you know him? Who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus. I'm up out of the grave. I'm God. Then he sees and he proclaims. Paul is eager to get to Rome. And you think about it with me. At the time, Rome's the most politically powerful city in the world. So if our hope was the power of politics, Paul would say, I don't have to get to Rome, man. They got it figured out. Well, the power of politics isn't our hope. The money is all in Rome. Well, if our hope was in money and that would make the world a better place, are you satisfied deep down in your soul if you just had more money? Paul wouldn't have to go to Rome. The most powerful army on earth is centered in Rome. So the strongest, wealthiest, mightiest people on the planet live in Rome. But for all that might and power, apart from the saving work of Jesus, the people in Rome were hopeless to live life as God created it to be. That's why Paul says, I'm eager. Your eagerness to proclaim the gospel comes out of you, your own transformed life, quite frankly, right? That he rescued me, so therefore I will proclaim to others the hope that is to be found in Jesus Christ. Speaking of mission trips, several years ago, me and some others here in the church went to Haiti not long after the earthquake. And I remember being on the bus so eager because we were going to a village that didn't have any food. None. And we had a bus full of rice or with a load of rice, and we were going there so eager because I knew we had what they needed. But I also want to temper that a little bit with saying, the world is not eager for your eagerness. Did you know that? Much of the unbelieving world isn't saying, well, thank goodness you finally showed up. No, they'll treat you like they treated Jesus. And it might be that you're persecuted for righteousness' sake. And then it's tied to verse 16, the third I am statement. I'm not ashamed. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in the righteousness of God is revealed. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. I love this statement because it's simple and profound all at the same time. It's the gospel. It's the power of God. That's the person behind the gospel. There's a plan or a purpose of the gospel for salvation. And and then there's a plan for it to everyone who believes. The gospel of Jesus Christ is about who he is and what he's done. The, The gospel, we love to use that word. It's a really simple word. It just means good news. I use an illustration, you know, when uh, Julie and I were going to have our third child, we had our oldest is Mary Clara, a girl, and our second was uh, a boy, Abel. So with the third, we just thought it would be kind of exciting to not find out if uh, our third was going to be a boy or a girl. We'd just find out sort of the day of. And I had it in my mind to kind of do the old-fashioned way that I'd be able to call people up and say, it's a 
I just wanted to share with them good news. I wanted to share with them something that had happened in the real world. That's what the word gospel means. It means that God has done something in the real world. Not theoretical. It's not uh, abstract. It's concrete. He became flesh and dwelt among us. And the good news is that God hasn't written you off. He hasn't discarded you. He's not ashamed of you. When you were trapped in a sinful life that turned all in on itself and your entire focus was self, God came as the one who is selfless. See, God created you to enjoy Him and love other people. But instead, we are born in sin self-absorbed. Look no further than what that means to Romans chapter 1. Verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. What Paul's saying is, this is what we've all done. We all went after something in creation rather than the creator. And creation is awesome, isn't it? Sunsets and sunrises. But that's not just all that he's talking about. Begin to be desires in your heart for created things. Other people or, or wanting to acquire power for yourself. This means to be lost, futile and foolish. But God has been faithful. And I love this. Look what he says. He says, I'm, I'm obligated, I'm eager, I'm not ashamed. And then he says, the gospel is the power of God to everyone who believes. Note with me. He doesn't say it's the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes and goes to church. Somebody says. He doesn't say for everyone who believes and goes on a mission trip. Or everyone who believes and goes to Sunday school. Or everyone who believes and tithes 10%. Or everyone who believes and. As soon as you add the word and, and we would have to add it because it's not there, it's no longer the gospel. Amen? Now, I do think that uh, if you believe, you will do some of those things, but we've got to be real careful about getting the order right. Living things live. That sounds kind of crazy, doesn't it? Give you an illustration before we conclude. I know y'all have been like, what in the world is this thing doing over here all day? Somebody forget to put it where it goes. Let me tell you a few things about this. If you're in the back of the room and you look, you might say, this tree is alive. But I can stand here. And on close inspection, it's not alive. It's dead. That means a couple of things. You don't have to water this. That's why we love these things, right? It looks, it looks so green and fresh, and you don't have to water it. You don't have to prune it. You don't have to, you don't have to do much of anything. And if you'd looked at this this time last year, it looked the very same. It hasn't grown. It hasn't changed. But let me tell you a few other things about this tree. It never reproduces. It's not got any seed in it. It's not got any roots, actually. It won't ever produce any fruit. Do you know why? It's dead. Amen. It's not real. The Apostle Paul says, Who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting, and I will show you what you are to do. Because, friends, in the same way 
that this doesn't need water because it's not alive? Spiritually speaking, this is water, His Word. Hunger and thirst for, 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 for righteousness. Never reproduce would mean that you'd never make another disciple. If you looked at your life a year ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, and look at it right now, you say, well, not much has changed. Still struggling with the same sins, still doing the same thing, still stuck in the same place. Never reproduce. He never produced life-giving oxygen. It's another way of saying absolutely no gospel boldness. No living life feeling I'm obligated in the godly sense of the word to take this message. It's the best, it's the greatest privilege I have. No, no, uh, no eagerness in living a life that doesn't say I'm not ashamed of the gospel. So, in conclusion, if you took these three statements, I'm obligated, I'm eager, I'm not ashamed, and turn them around, it would sound like this. In my life, I feel like everybody else owes me. I've, I've gotten the short stick, and I'll let you know about how angry I am about it quite, right? I'm reluctant. I'm reluctant. In, in fact, when I'm around people, I've kind of got this desire inside of my heart that Jesus and those kind of things don't come up. Like, I'm okay with it here and now, but out there, ooh, let's. And then if it were to come up, I'd be a little bit ashamed to really say, this is what I believe. That makes sense. Now, those are things that would be true for something that's taken the form of a living thing, but actually it's not alive. And, and this matters so much because Jesus says, on that day, many will come to me saying, Lord, Lord. See, they think they got the answer to the question right. I'm ready to answer. Who are you? You're the Lord. And here's what we've done. And Jesus will say, depart from me. I never knew you. Now, God is my witness. I don't say that lightly. I'm in no way trying to manipulate or any. The warnings of Scripture, Psalm 19, right? The warnings are helpful. To be filled with the Spirit, to be a follower of Jesus, means that you are defined by gospel boldness. He went in and out among them, everywhere he went, boldly proclaiming. Because the righteous will live by faith. I'm going to invite you to stand and we're going to pray together and I trust the word of the Lord. I trust Jesus. So in the time of response, we're going to pray and then we'll let the Holy Spirit lead. It'd be my privilege if sometime today or this week, if somebody wants to sit down and talk about some things, I would love. That'd be my, my privilege. Sit down with you with an open Bible and hear what God's speaking to you about. Maybe it'd be a good opportunity this morning just to confess to the Lord, God, I don't know how, when, or maybe I do know how and when, but I've lost my gospel boldness. Restore it to me, Lord. Or it might be, it might be, you're really ready to answer the question, who are you? He is Jesus. Father, I thank you. I thank you for the Lord Jesus. Oh, God, help us that this is not a try harder, do more message but rather it is a we believe Jesus has done everything that there is to do. Who is he? He's the Lamb of God. Who is he? He's the one who's removed our transgressions as far as east is from west. Who is he? He's our soon coming King. Father, give us grace that having been rescued by Christ through faith, we, in a godly way, believe we are obligated to be a faithful witness to him right where we are. Give us eagerness like the Apostle Paul has in sharing the gospel with other people. And Lord, may it be that we are not ashamed of the one 
who died in our place. Fill this sanctuary up with the joyful praise of your people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.